I'm Nathan Gita. And I'm Aaron Ekman. From BC's northern capital. Welcome to the Ram and Stag Show. Well, Aaron, why don't you tell us what your opening position is? Well, universal basic income, Nathan, is one of those strange issues where conservatives seem oddly progressive and many progressives turn frightfully conservative. For better or worse, the economy we seem to prefer requires each of us to hold down a job. And if we don't risk, and if we don't do that, we risk either starving or, in the case of the North, freezing to death. The contradiction inherent in this system is that there simply aren't enough jobs to go around, and increasingly, the majority of new jobs available simply don't pay the bills. If left unchecked, this contradiction can spark significant political movements, and they're often not progressive at all. It's a historical fact that the common denominator preceding the rise of most fascist regimes is mass unemployment and economic instability. And so we've devised all sorts of schemes aimed at reconciling this contradiction. One of them is welfare. Also unemployment insurance, old age security, disability benefits, the list goes on. All of which are meant to transfer funds to people we've deemed to need the money most. The result has been the erection of, the, of entire government ministries in British Columbia employing thousands of people whose sole job it is to determine who is eligible for payment and who is not. The process is called means testing, and it's the opposite of universal programs such as our healthcare system, because it employs condition or wealth-based discrimination to target money to some groups while excluding others. Universal programs provide a benefit to everyone based on their citizenship, whereas means testing represents all the factors a government would use to disqualify you from a benefit. Like, for instance, you got hurt somewhere other than work, or you, didn't have a dis- or you don't have a disability, or you make too much money, or conceivably, in the not-too-distant future, the color of your skin is wrong. That's what's meant by means testing, and progressives are just as addicted to it as many conservatives traditionally have been, but for very different reasons. For some conservatives, the idea that anyone might receive any sum of money without having worked in the traditional sense to earn it is abhorrent. abhorrent. They hate it. They consider it a reward for laziness. For these types of conservatives, means testing is often employed to frustrate the highest possible number of benefit applicants in hopes that they might in future define the program as underutilized, thus providing them with the rationale to shut it down. These such conservatives often traditionally represent the interests of employers, both small and large, and often complain that providing a universal minimum income creates a disincentive to work, which they see as economically counterintuitive. Progressives like means testing because it requires a lot of staff to go over the benefit applications, which in the case of the public sector means more union members and more union dues. And I don't mean that as a criticism, it's simply a fact. This is very rarely ever mentioned because it's hardly a popular position. More often, rather, progressives will claim that means testing ensures the benefit won't be wasted on the rich. But when it comes to the discussion of a universal basic income, a rather pesky contradiction emerges here from progressives who say they're concerned about growing growing income inequality between the rich and the poor. These are the people who often complain about the so-called 1%, controlling the vast majority of wealth in society. And make no mistake, I'm one of those people who complain about the 1%. But do you see the contradiction here? The point is that the wealthiest comprise such a tiny, fractional segment of our population. They're so small that when we talk about a universal minimum income program, remitting you, say, let's say a 1000 or a $2,000 check every month simply because you're a citizen, well, as far as inefficiencies goes... 1% barely even registers. In fact, providing $2,000 per month to British Columbian millionaires and billionaires 
is far cheaper for the BC taxpayer than paying for all the bureaucratic infrastructure required to disqualify that same 1%. When presented with this reality, progressives often retreat to the argument that the threat of a universal basic income is that it replaces other necessary benefits like welfare, disability insurance, old age security, etc. Here, progressives are not entirely wrong. Indeed, UBI adherents on the right, like the Fraser Institute and even Milton Friedman in his discussion of the similarly-minded negative income tax, do intend for a UBI to replace these things. But despite this motivation, it's a mistake for progressives to associate a universal basic income with the same disdain they have for the right's efforts to cut social programs. A universal basic income is only a Trojan horse for cuts to social programs if progressives allow conservatives to use it that way. And keep in mind, conservatives have never before needed such an excuse to cut taxpayer services. They'll do it with or without a UBI to point to. The reality is a UBI can exist alongside any existing government service or benefit, just as private pensions coexist with the Canada Pension Plan uh, and old age security, welfare coexists with the disability insurance, all of which used to coexist with the old BC Family Allowance Benefit. What distinguishes all these programs from a UBI is that just like universal health care in Canada, qualification to receive a universal basic income requires nothing more than your citizenship. It's entirely possible that a UBI might reduce the amount one receives from one government agency, but the total amount one receives per month doesn't have to change. And if a recipient now receives the same amount of money via UBI rather than some means-tested program, it eliminates the possibility that someday they'll fail the means test and no longer qualify for that money. So if a new government initiative can be devised to make the distribution of needed funds to people who need it the most more efficient and reliable, then surely we should shut down some of the old less efficient means-tested programs, yes? Well, when presented with this reality, progressives who remain opposed to a UBI are forced to retreat to their underlying and vastly unpopular argument, which is that shutting down old inefficient programs might eliminate some public sector jobs. And unless you're talking about the environment versus private sector jobs for which progressive concern is registered at a distant second, very few progressives today will entertain any policy which threatens any number of public sector jobs. And this absolutely includes a universal basic income, which is rather ironically the one program which most efficiently mitigates the risk of job loss. Now, I'm not going to try today to convince you that a universal basic income is our is our province's best immediate step towards weathering the coming economic storms. We will have that conversation soon, but today I just want to highlight this one glaring contradiction on the left, which views itself as a progressive force for change in society. The moment you argue to protect some tradition or program based solely on the financial welfare of that program's bureaucracy, you cease to be a progressive. It doesn't matter which political party you hold a membership in, if you oppose changing or improving a government program because you're primarily concerned about the employment impact it will have on the bureaucracy, even if that change would literally put more money in the pockets of those who need it, you are by definition a conservative. All bureaucracies, given enough time, however well-intentioned, will eventually grow self-awareness and work to preserve their own existence. It's the nature of human group self-preservation. It's the exact same drive which prompts workers to organize unions, to fight for contracts, and to conserve or protect the gains they win. The challenge for progressives, however, is to remember that unions were created to defend the rights of workers, 
not the indefinite proliferation of outdated bureaucracies. Progressives fought hard in previous generations for the social programs we have today. The hardest fight was for universal health care. But every single one of these programs was an attempt to put a band-aid on the gaping wound that capitalism is destined to reopen in our society. If, we, if it were up to me, we'd forget about the band-aids and focus our attention on the source of the wound. But that's for another day. For as long as we insist on organizing our economy along capitalistic lines, the bandages will need to be changed regularly. And if progressives insist on directing their efforts towards defending the old Band-Aid brand over any other possible innovative alternative, particularly one like a universal basic income, which actually achieves their stated end goals more, more quickly and more efficiently, then a political realignment is indeed occurring in British Columbia in which self-identified progressives come to embody the most conservative elements of society. It's part of the reason union density continues to decline, even though working conditions for workers are becoming worse. And it's part of the reason an increasing number of union voters have been trending towards more conservative political parties. And so it was really interesting to me, Nathan, and quite disappointing, actually, that after the BCNDP government was elected, with some hope that they would explore universal basic income, they spent $2 million uh, for a two-year project at a UBC uh, which was run primarily by an economist by the name of David Green. And after two years of studies and putting together a number of papers, spending $2 million of the, of the taxpayer funds, they came back with a recommendation that said, basically, all we need to do is give more money to the programs that already exist, and that should help us get through whatever problem we're facing currently, which to me is the most conservative approach possible from a so-called progressive government and demonstrates to me that the New Democratic Party in British Columbia was never, ever interested in, in seriously entertaining or conducting an experiment uh, on universal basic income in the province. One of the things that was really interesting was that this got brought up inside of the BC political panel that I particip participated in with our good friend, uh, good friend of the show, Stuart Parker. Mm. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about was exactly this, that that uh, and I brought up these exact same points. That obviously a lot of this had to do with uh, the public sector uh, wanting to kind of protect its own territory. I don't have a problem with pro public sector workers, uh, especially on the front line where people actually need them. That's always I find to be the biggest thing is that managerial classes grow, but the front line workers shrink. You know, like we could fix a lot of problems throughout Northern Health, throughout all of our healthcare systems in this country, if we essentially did a you know a decimation of the of the managerial class and took those salaries and put them back to front line. But that's a different question for a different time. The issue right here, though, is that we know that just handing people money is actually the quickest way to get things just rolling. Right? Circulate funds to, to the circulate economy. Money, yeah. To circulate money. Food and the thing is, I'm actually a really big anti-non-currency guy. I hate everything that's non-currency. And I know this is going to be bad. I, I know people are going to hate this. But, like, I honestly, I hate, I hate Aeroplan. Okay, I hate Aeroplan. I hate all non-currency-based items because it's just like benefits and contracts, right? Benefits are in lieu of salary, right? So for you progressives out there who are bougie, right, and you don't, and so like, oh, I really like my Aeroplan thing. When's the last time you were in a union contract? Because I mean, if you're a progressive and you're bougie, then you're probably some kind of academic. I'm sorry, and therefore, ergo, ipso facto, last time you were in a union contract, they said, well, we can't give you more money, but we can give you more, I don't know, dental or whatever. Something you're never going to use, something that's very rare, or they're going to make sure you can be disallowed it. Why didn't they just give you more money? And it's the same thing. Like, 
give me dental's, cash back. Dental's probably a bad example. Well, probably like, maybe a trip private, to Hawaii but, but, every well, year. Well, or any you know, like or or you know more. Well, because everybody time. uses dentists, but well, I mean, <laughs> I haven't been to the dentist in years, but that, so I guess that is a bad example. But that's not the point. The point is this: that I, you know, fundamentally, it, they're giving you something that they hope you don't use. And and they and they're they banking just, on they're banking on you yeah, not exactly using and they yeah. could have just given you money right they could have just given you money yeah and that's the thing that gets to me it's like just give people real money it's the same thing with these with the stupid charge cards and all the stupid points it's like no give me cash back that's it well the one thing you know like I had a, obviously a lot of criticisms about the Trump presidency but the one thing that I thought he was on the right track with at the outset of the pandemic was entertaining this idea of just cutting a two thousand dollar check to everybody right away and if I I think if he had sort of st- campaigned on that harder uh he probably would have done a bit better although really i mean he was proposing this back in march and he had until november to try to get it through I, what he really should have done is instead of playing around with congress over all these different stimulus bills he really should have just tried to push this through executive order and let congress push back on it even if he didn't get it i think he would have come out looking looking the champion but there's actually like it actually made economic sense if the problem that you're facing is that you have to lock everything down and shut the economy down and the best way to sort of pull out of that is to try to circulate money somehow. But nobody's got any bloody money because nobody's got a bloody job anymore. Well, that's the perfect time, if any, to start cutting people's checks instead of putting them through all sorts of means testing. And I could see right from the beginning and started complaining uh, loudly about it that the Liberal Party, you know, quite predictably in in Canada, was going to try to push any any support out out to working folks through these me- existing means tested programs. Well, if anybody's, you know, ever had to go through the employment insurance process, it is so bureaucratic and the amount of paperwork you got to go through to stay on employment insurance, you know, I've, I've been told for years is just ridiculous. So much so that there are dedicated EI advocates to try to help people through this process. And often unions play a role in trying to help people deal with EI as they get laid off and stuff like that because it's so difficult. Well, that difficulty comes with a, a literal cost. You have to pay people to cre- to devise all these hoops that you make people jump through. Then you got to pay people to watch them jump through the hoops to make sure they cleared the hoop. And you got to you got to pay them to check in with them all the time because every time you you set up a system that tries to discriminate against people based on their income or their disability or whatever, there's a huge bureaucratic cost to excluding others from that benefit. And if your goal is I mean, we should have just admitted at the outset of the pandemic, the goal was not to to eliminate poverty. The goal actually, because poverty exists, poverty existed well before the pandemic did. We should allevi- alleviate poverty, but the goal at the, at the outset of the pandemic was not necessarily, should not have been to alleviate poverty. It should have been to keep the economy going to the best ability, the best of our ability possible, given that people were losing their jobs like crazy and simply cutting them a check would have made a lot of sense. Uh, and, and we com- did that in some ways with the CERB. And and but, but again, the, means all means tested. It was means tested yeah. to a point, and of course, of course, it was taxable. Yeah. And of course, no, like I mean, I didn't hold back any of that money. Like I mean, I was going to keep it for April twenty twenty one. Are you kidding me? Well, <laughs> and, but think of the cost it went into determining who was eligible for it, and think of the additional cost now to the taxpayer in the government having to go back to to try to recoup money that they think was paid out in error. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Just cut everybody a check. And if a couple of billionaires get $1,000 or $2,000, which like is just literally nothing to them, like it's probably more beneficial for them to give it to charity and get the tax break. Like it just, it just doesn't, it's not even going to register. And it's, it's such a small percentage of the population. I mean, the, the big expense is getting those checks out to everybody who really needs it. And so I'm sorry, but so what if somebody who uh, is on welfare 
uh, gets a little bit more money through a universal basic income, uh, but welfare gets taken away. Uh, as long as at the, at the end of every month, they've actually got the same amount of money or more. Uh, and the disincentive argument, of course, uh, to work is it's not entirely inaccurate. Like I, I know back in the 70s, they, they had what was called in Manitoba, they had what was called the Mincom, the Man- Manitoba Minimal Income, basically. And it was a, it was a short uh, um, little experiment they did with this one economist from the unit who, who ran it. And he determined, he said, look, it actually didn't, after we concluded the, the experiment, or they got close to concluding, it got shut down pretty quick, I think, when, it, when the government changed. And it was an NDP government that initiated it. But they, you know, he said, look, we didn't actually find any evidence that there was a, 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 a downspike in incentive to work. Uh, we know that there's been some American experience uh, experiments that try to quantify it between five to ten percent of a drop in incentive incentivization to work, but they just finished up a a, a, run, a free run of this in Stockton, California, and I just saw the former mayor of Stockton, California, talking about how there was like they saw the opposite. It wasn't that there was a decline in people's incentive to work. There was a slight. Uh, there was more protection. Like those people no longer had to take shitty jobs that didn't pay very much, right? There was a disincentive to, to working crappy jobs for very little money. But those people didn't just sit at home. They would try to, you know, they go to school to try to upskill so they could, they could get jobs that paid better. Uh, that's what they reported doing, spending their time doing. Uh, but nobody can live on $1,000 a month or two, even $2,000 a month, especially for families, is, is virtually impossible. So people still have to work. But here's the point. We, we've decided that we've got this economy where you have to have a job or you're going to die, right? But then there's not enough jobs for everybody. And a lot of the jobs that do exist, they're not good enough. And if you actually look at the number of jobs in our economy, like we could probably quantify that 75% of them are just garbage. Like they don't even need to exist, you know? Uh, so we've, we've got ourselves into this sort of downward sp- spiral that you have to have a job to live and there's not enough jobs for everybody. So our politicians are constantly just trying to create jobs through the private sector. Yes, but we don't care about what the jobs are. We don't care if they're helpful to society or not. It just matters that everybody has a bloody job. And so we spend all these resources just trying to keep everybody employed. Whereas if we had a better system where we sort of, we reduce the number of hours that everybody had to work every day. So instead of, you know, if you got one job and two people, instead of having an eight hour shift, just have two, four hour shifts and the universal basic income makes up the rest. Uh, and then all of the things that humans can get up to in their free time. Like, I don't care if you, if you spend all of your extra hours because you got a UBI not working instead of sitting in church. To me, that's, a, that's better uh, th- than you spending that time, you know, working for somebody else if there's enough other people around to do the work. It also enables us to get, get people experience in other, in other professions that they might not otherwise. Because it reduces the need to hang on to your job and protect it. Because if you lose it, it's not like the end of the world for you. So you can actually, you know, provide more space for people to come in and, and get more. So I would, you know, for in this total utopian world, for instance, I could spend four hours a week or whatever working with sanitation services to learn how that works. Uh, and we could start to view some jobs more like jury duty that you occasionally get sucked into than something you have to do. Otherwise, your family's going to die. I mean, that's certainly how I would hope our political system would work is that, you know, you would be drafted into it, cast lots, whatever, make sure that people... People would be. I mean, if the ten, if the ten people on your street are are expected to be able to organize neighborhood watch and neighborhood neighborhood activities and that sort of thing, why can't it be you know another ten people, 
you know, from down the street that are helping run the city. Like, I mean, like, why can't it be like that? It should be ever, ever uh, growing circles of, of representation and whatever else. I guess that's like citizen assemblies and stuff like that. But anyways, I mean, again, that gets into a whole other political uh, argument. But I guess coming back to the core question of at least the benefits of UBI, I think for conservatives, there's at least two parts to it. The one part is going to be like, well, okay, where's the money going to come from? Right. That's that's one legitimate question. And good and, question. And the other half of the question is, even so, like, even we could get to that utopia, wouldn't it be better for people to be just totally independent on their own anyways? Even if that would look like, so for those of us who maybe hold to a kind of non-Manchester liberalism version, version of Toryism, so kind of like almost a romantic version of Toryism from the early, like the early 19th century, which was a reaction to what was happening, um, and it kind of showed up again in the 20th century, the former G.K. Chesterton and a few other thinkers, is that, you know, why not, why can't we try to put people back onto the land, for example, and have them be independent or find a way that people can be self-reliant? And, and that way, there's at least less of a burden on this whole kind of behemoth called civilization than the Leviathan of government. And simultaneously, that freeholder, right, that person, that freeholder, have, understands like maybe they don't have you know they're not a they don't have a nation but they have a yard you know they have a yard they have a house they have something that's their own and they're a freeholder in that nation and that way they can negotiate with their other freeholders as to what they want the political future of that nation to be because they're not they're not dependent they're interdependent and and they're capable of holding their own and so this has been kind of an ongoing debate inside conservatives. Who's going to pay or how are we going to make the money to do this? And then on the flip side, even if we could do it, would that actually be a necessary good? Uh, the payment itself? You mean? Well, yeah. That, or, right. like, or is that like, would it become a right? A, well, yeah. Or even yeah. like, would it become like, is, is that really what the common good means? Or does the common good or commonwealth, right, mean something else? Like the idea that, well, no one starves and, every, and there's a sense of community and whatever else. It's not just a check in the mail while you live in a box and wait for Amazon to uh, give you another bonus for something or whatever, like, you know, living this very compartmentalized life, like it's, I don't know, the fifth element or something. It's, it's more like, no, there's a, there's a better belonging. There's a better belonging to, uh, to, to fundamentally that, that you have a community and a sense of belonging. And even if you aren't very rich, you have, you have that, that's where the fulfillment comes from. So who will pay and then what kind of society do we want to make? Yeah, and we should do a whole episode on this. But the the question of who will pay is, is a very important one. Um, and really, like in terms of budgeting this stuff out, uh, you, you sort of, I mean, you have to approach it from the perspective of what government is currently spending a lot of money on. And and it, it'd be one thing for me to say, well, it's, and I have said, it's it's cheaper to pay uh, that benefit out to the whole population than it is to try to means test it. Uh, and and uh, segment it. Uh, the reality is we've already figured out how to pay for a whole host of different benefits that people receive without doing any work. Disability insurance, old age security. Uh, now, you can make the argument in case of pensions and old age security that people work their whole lives and it's sort of a forced savings program. That's that's fair fair comment. And EI is something we pay into. Same, things as well, same thing as well. And so obviously UBI uh, from its... Uh, I mean, you have to understand UBI is... A, fundamentally a government program. So how you pay for it is a very simple question that most people just shy away from because it involves the T word, right? It's paid through, it's paid for through, through public taxation. The question is like, how do you get enough money from, from public taxation? Well, you, you certainly, you can't really raise taxes well and above what they're already at uh, under the current framework. You could certainly change the way taxes are, are collected. Um, But What's important for people to understand is that like a UBI 
what I liked about uh, what I actually liked about the SoCred approach to this back in the 1930s with the social credit program over universal basic income is that the amount that was paid out was not the same amount. Like it wasn't a flat rate every month. So it wasn't a guaranteed income. It was more of a dividend, right? So the question of how it was paid for in cases where the government wasn't pulling in as much revenue this year, for instance, as it was last year, was dealt with reconciled by simply paying a lower dividend out. So your operating costs don't become the thing that you, you can't you can't reconcile, right? Like if right. It, it, you just have this payment you have to make, like like debt, for example, right? Like interest on debt, you have to make this payment, and it's like, well, we didn't make a lot of revenue this year. Well, now we're taking out more debt right. to pay the debt. To, because right. that makes sense, and that, and that absolutely get puts any government province or national or otherwise into an unsustainable position. So that's that's not what I think people should be advocating. Well, banks are very nice people. Yeah, no, of course. And they'll just give you money just because they like the look of your beard. Yeah, you that's, know? Right. that's right. Yeah. So, th- so that was a better system. But ultimately, none of these systems require more money. Uh, they just require a different allocation of money. And it's less, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate the sort of the philosophical approach that, that the right has to it in terms of who should be paying and and again, these are the fundamental questions that are really wrapped up in means testing, like who should be the recipient and that kind of thing. Well, the, the answer to the question of who pays is us, obviously. And I, you know, I mean, the left tries to shy away from this because they're worried they're going to get beat up over the head by conservatives. Well, I mean, how else do you pay for something like this? We shouldn't shy away from that. Uh, but the, the other question about whether we should is, is certainly open for debate. But the real uh, debate I think that we should be having, the conversation we should be having is what does the economy look like if we don't start doing this in the next few years, especially given the onset of automation? Yes. So, and, the, you know, there was there was the, what was his name, John Ro- Roberts or Robarts or something like that, who was the Ontario Conservative Premier back in 1969. And he's kind of famous for having spoken out in favor way back then for a, a, basically what was uh, he was calling a universal basic income because he was worried back in the late 60s that automation was going to exacerbate this problem where the economy just didn't produce enough jobs for everybody. And he understood as well as we all do that we live in this economy where if you don't have a job, you're in a lot of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. So he was already trying to theorize back then as many people were. And, you know, he, and it's not like he came up with this on his own. I mean, the Eberhardt Socrates had existed in the 30s already uh, when he was a young man. Uh, and they were already grappling with this. But the reality is, as especially with it, when a pandemic comes through like this, um, all of these jobs that have sort of proliferated, not because they're the primary industries, not because they're you know private sector jobs that are generally resource based, which is let's be honest, that's where the wealth comes from. Yes, you know that's that's where the source of it you comes from. You have to from. dig something out of the ground. You got to mow something off the lawn. Yeah, or pull something out of the water, and everything else is is sort of you know, flows from that in some respect, all the small businesses, all the services, uh, you, you know, every people often sort of criticize me when I talk about this stuff, they say, well, look, you know, the old uh, resource jobs just don't really drive the economy in British Columbia anymore because a minority of people are actually working in them, which is numerically true. But that's the foundation under which all of the uh, from which all of the service sector jobs that dominate the rest of the economy are derived. I, I was I had to reference this with somebody the other day. Uh, they, they they this wasn't it wasn't a dishonest question. There wasn't a dismissive one about resource sector jobs. So they just said, "Oh, but do you really think the town wouldn't exist anymore if the pulp mill went away?" I said, "Do you know like think think about it? Yeah, where's the pipeline go? Yeah, why do they need that energy? Think about the power plant downtown that's heating all that other stuff. Like all the reason that there's even a university up here and everything else that was the seed, but it's also." It's also an ongoing revenue source, and it makes your infrastructure yeah. comes here. It's 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 uh, you know the heights of capital and the oligarchs that 
can make things happen in this way, whatever differences we might have yeah. with that class. Well, but then even in the private sector, say, say in mining, for instance, mining and like longshore, uh, which is, you know, like it's not a primary industry, but it's trade of commodities and, and stuff. Uh, going in and out of the ports. Literally where all your stuff comes yeah, from. Yeah, forestry. None of these industries, I mean, these are the industries that are actually under just as much or more threat of automation than anybody else. So, that, so the question isn't, you know, will automation stop producing value? Uh, and, and I know some of the arguments against automation from those sectors are, we shouldn't move down that road because robots don't pay taxes, which is true. But it's not like they're not producing value. They're still mm-hmm. doing the work. They're still producing uh, wealth for someone. The societal question is what, do, you know, where does that wealth go and what do we do with it? Yes. And, and you know, if robots are producing, like I'm actually not opposed to a lot of automation because I think it makes our lives safer uh, because we, and, and, and it gives us more free time because we don't, we literally don't have to work as much because the robots are doing the work. But what the important question to resolve is, okay, so how does that wealth still flow back to British Columbians? I never right. thought I'd be in a room where somebody was trying to market fully automated space communism, but uh, here we are. Um, I, I mean, a luxury space communism, to be clear. I think, I think so. But here's here's another thing when it comes to uh, kind of a conservative. This isn't on that it. far off, though. I mean, no, we're isn't. we're like literally a few years away from this. Well, well, right. in different pieces, certainly. Yeah. It's gonna. It might very well be if we don't get this right, it's going to turn into a plantation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with robots, and so we're not even going to be uh, given the credence of being people who are on the plantation who are not being paid for. Our well, services. there'll be some really rich oligarchs that are and, uh, yeah, with, with and some robot and armies, not even being fed, and <laughs> a whole bunch of poor people. Yeah, right? there you go. Yeah, there you go. I feel like I saw that movie once. Um, it, <laughs> the thing is, the thing is that uh, so there's another place where conserves kind of uh balk a little bit, or I but I think a kind of kind of middle road I, I don't know why i keep using the term broad church but like i mean like you know kind of a, a middle of the road conservative or hardware store conservative could be like okay like that's interesting like I, that'd be great like i'd love to like never work again i guess that'd be kind of fun or like do my own projects and work in my own yard that's all great um how how do we get to that society and who's gonna again kind of pay for it or do it because i'm what i'm thinking of really is kind of animal farm Right, like so, we all know this parable, and I can he- I can hear it already. The left wingers would be like, "You can't use that reference every time. That is not the only theory. That's not fair." It's it and yeah, it's uh, applicable. Not, it's applicable. It is applicable, but they're not wrong. There are other left leftist theory questions, criticism that needs to be discussed. But another time. The point is though that in Animal Farm, like the part that gets you is that like all the animals come together and they're like, you know what? Let's let's do it. We're gonna build the windmill. Like we're gonna have like heated barns. Like things are gonna be awesome. And like, I'm like I'm I don't know. I don't actually know the history of the Soviet Union enough to know if that was really the argument. But a utopia was promised. A utopia was promised. And so obviously people slaved away for the purpose of the motherland and what we got to get done here. And you know, there's Boxer. Napoleon is always right. So here we go. And of course. The oligarchs, the powers that be, come together and they rob them of the wealth. They kill off anybody that's in their way, and and they get slaves out of it, right? And so this is kind of the other question for conservatives: like, well, at least with all these private enterprises, like they all hate each other enough that they, you know, as much as they might all be persecuting me at some level, they also hate each other enough that I can be fairly certain that I'm not going to like wind up, you know, in a gulag tomorrow. But the problem with they have with this idea of this collectivist mentality is like. Well, I mean, other people tried it, and, like, the idea that they could get to fully, well, automated for their time, a fully automated wealthy society that was utopian, that didn't turn out so great for them either. Sure. So how how are we going to get to that fully automated utopia? Yeah, well, we, utopia? Just, we just guard against the the same mistakes that those people made, right? Mm. And, like, one could, one could easily argue that uh, in all sorts of circumstances— 
capitalistic economies have been abject failures. Uh, and yet it hasn't stopped us from trying capitalism again. American healthcare works. Yeah, right. Well, uh, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of countries all, all over the world. I mean, the majority of people on Earth are... 80% of the population of the planet is probably below what we would consider the poverty line, like dirt poor. And the vast majority of those countries are all capitalist, right? So you could, you could, it would be very easy for me to say just on a numbers game that capitalism is like the, the least successful economic system in, uh, in humanity. But I don't believe that. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's definitely um, productive elements of a capitalistic economy in terms of generating wealth in, in short periods of time. It also requires a fair, fair degree of exploitation, and, and we're living through it. We did not have to go to a commissar for these mugs, for example. No, sure. I mean, and why should we have to do that, right? So it's reductive to get into these into these debates over like whether capitalism is better or socialism is better. I'm just talking about a universal basic income, right? And I happen like you know when people would say, "Oh, well, you don't seem to be complaining about a capitalist system in Canada that well." It's like no, because we have a pretty socialized uh, healthcare system, which sort of takes care of a lot of the bare necessities that would would people people would normally worry about in their worst times. Uh, and, and if we can sustain that and still have people run their own businesses and still have all the innovation and stuff that sort of emerges from that, that profit motive, well, what's wrong with that, right? But we have some real economic problems facing us. And it's not just wide-eyed socialists like me that are talking about this. It tends to be a lot of conservatives and not just recently. Like, I mean, Thomas, uh, Milton Friedman uh, in his discussion of a negative in- income tax was basically talking about the same thing, just yeah. coming at it a slightly different way. Yep. Uh, and the Eberhardt conservatives, of course, or uh, Socrates were very conservative. Uh, and they were the first ones to implement this in, in any real way at a provincial level. But what pisses me off the most about the provincial government's approach to this right now is we just put, we just finished up a two-year study worth $2 million uh, and came back with a recommendation that, well, we pretty much should just put more money into the existing welfare structure and that maybe will help. We don't know. I think they had something like 42 different papers that that were supposed to demonstrate this. It's like you could have just taken the $2 million and picked a small community out in, in, you know, remote rural British Columbia. It could have even been a First Nations uh, reserve, for instance. And you could have run that pilot project, given people $2,000 for a couple of years, and then you would have had some data to do something with. And, And instead of just sort of theorizing about it and looking at, I don't know even what they really looked at, uh, you might have had something, some so hard, hard debt. Like it's just, it's just such a waste. And it, and the only way you do that is if you never had any intention of going down this road in the first place. Because progressives are terrified of changing the whole employment paradigm. They're as terrified of it as employers traditionally have been. They're terrified of workers no longer being reliant on a, on a union for their basic security, for instance. They're terrified of that whole framework being different than it has been in the past, which is why I say if you're opposed to this kind of fundamental paradigm shift, you cease to be a progressive. You are by definition a conservative, which I'm fine with. We should have people that are wary of this stuff. Just don't lie about it. Just don't lie about what you are. Just be honest. Okay, you're a conservative on UBI. That's fine. We can, I get along with him. I can get along with you too. But he's honest and you're not. So <laughs> I think I think it's interesting, right? Because it's it's one of those things where we, we are seeing this realignment. That's That's definitely part of it. We're seeing the realignment. But I think another another issue here is that, like, I guess people people are just looking for the fiefdoms, right? It's all about empire. It's always about empire. It's always about imperialism, and 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 wherever whether you can, uh, you know, build the union for everybody, which I guess is what Unifor is now, or whatever's going on over there, or you can you can uh, you know create the ultimate uh, small business destroying entity like Amazon, right? The thing is that you you just want your fiefdom. 
right? And the idea, in a sense, I guess, coming back to that kind of maybe maybe more romantic version of conservatism, or what what at one point was called redistrib redistributionism under under uh, Chesterton and uh, people like Hiller Belloc and a few others, was that the idea was that well, we give everybody a little fiefdom, and then that way there aren't any big ones. Right, and they're all kind of part of a constituent assembly of, of of little fiefdoms, and that way that way we make sure that like the power is just decentralized, and so and people can be more progressive. Like that town probably is more progressive over there, just like this town is more conservative, and like but they're all freeholders, and therefore have a stake, and therefore have a sense of belonging, community. There's a collective goodwill, collective projects, and therefore that's what's going to keep the oligarchs from taking over. And, and so it's an interesting problem to try and solve now because the idea of putting everybody on, you know, five acres with a cow or whatever it needs to be, 10 acres and a cow, or using the seigneurial system that was being used in France or and, and in New France with the river and then, like, little lines coming off of it, right, because every single, uh, every little hermitage was allowed to have waterfront. That's a pretty good map. To, to, uh, to uh, irrigate. The point is, I don't know what, exactly what that needs to look like, but the point is that, like, that's kind of, at least that's the one I carry with me. It's like if I have a universal basic anything, it's like let's have... Let's let's get everybody back into a place where they are where they are more independent. They're able to make more of their own food. They're able to make more decisions for themselves. Life doesn't cost so much, but obviously the means of that is pretty crazy. And, and so then I am amenable to these questions. But the but the simultaneous thing is like, well, cool. So like maybe if we all if we all like came together as a province and we took the next hundred years and we built another three dams and made our electricity literally like you know, a penny, a kilowatt or whatever. Now you're speaking my language. Well, and, and like, you know, we've got, I don't know, like blimps in the air. I really like dirigibles, by the way. I'm that, I'm that crank. I love dirigibles. Like I totally think we should have dirigibles going all across this country that are going nice and slow and are very, very cheap to fly in. And then, you know, ordinance can get up to the North and down the South. That'd be great. But the point is like, so we got all that going on and it really does look like something out of like basically the art deco period, right? The thirties, right. You know, which, Got kind of fascist at times, but the point is, we got we got this whole thing going on, and it really is. It's kind of like a utopia, but it's like the problem is somebody's going to screw this up. Right. <laughs> Somebody, yes. somebody's going to seize the uh, reins, and they are going to take over. Assuredly, yeah. And it's like, how do I stop those people from doing? We that? have how to do- stop them from doing it. Well, there you go. Yeah. And you know, the question: How? Well, we'll figure it out when they try to take it over, but we'll stop them, and we have to because if we don't, we know what the consequence is. Yeah. On that, I think we're to, we're agreed. But this is, I think, there's more to come on this issue. It's certainly something. I mean, there's a main uh, Democratic candidate for for the presidency. This is his main ticket, and he's doing quite well on it. So it's this, it's this issue that keeps coming up. And I don't think you just because the BC NDP government has sort of shuffled the whole concept off into a corner of the UBC Economics Department uh, that that it's going to go away. I, th- I think, uh, especially in the in the high density urban areas, where Never mind they're not being enough jobs. They actually have more jobs per capita down there than we do here. It doesn't matter what job you have. You can't afford, never mind, you're talking about house and having a house and independence and a yard and stuff. I mean, they can barely afford a postage stamp sized uh, condo there. there. Yeah. So it's not. living in closets. That's right. I mean, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. They're not They're. I mean, it's terrible. And uh, the issue is definitely not going away. It's one that we'll, we'll cover here. Uh, from the perspective of of uh, interior British Columbians, but I think also you know there's there it's a bit it'll be a big issue for the high density areas as well. So thanks for joining us uh, on our episode today, and stay tuned for the next one coming up shortly.